I'm probably a little bit more excited than I should be, but like, come on. Um, I think that th- <laughs> no, I I disagree with your statement. I think there's no limit to how excited we can or should be. You guys, we what as you guys know, we've been doing this podcast game for like two years now, and we were just now featured in a Vanity Fair article, and it was really cool. And honestly, we want to spend some time at the upfront talking about this article because it brought up so many points that we had never talked about and discussed and it was very eye-opening yeah the article is our true crime podcast ready for the hashtag defund the police era and it was written by marissa Meltzer. and we literally got this notification and read the article like an hour ago (laughs) but it brought up some really honest and real criticisms of a lot of the true crime uh, podcasts and the industry out there that I was like, shit, that's that's real. And I think a lot of the criticisms um, are ones that we have been aware of and made strides to not be like that. But I, I think there's a lot in it that it's like, wow, we hadn't thought about that. Yeah, one of the biggest gists of the article is that a lot of these true crime podcasts are using other sources. And a lot of those sources come from police reports and we focus a lot on very highly politicized crimes, a lot done by white men to white women. And there's there's so much in the crime world that is not being explored as deeply. And as everyone has seen, people's eyes are opening up right now to the grave injustices of our justice system. And this is something Tyler and I have talked about time and time again, but When you look at some of our cases, that's not coming through. It's not coming through that we don't agree a lot of the times with the justice system, because maybe in that case, we do agree. And so it's just a non-issue almost, but that's not reality. Yeah. I think the true crime like podcast and entertainment side and its relationship with the police, I mean, it's definitely something that absolutely needs more light shed on needs to be looked into a lot and one of the things the article mentioned and really dove into is a lot of podcasts have this way of uh really telling the story of these crimes and having the reaction from both the hosts the listeners of these you know death sentences or these life sentences in prison with this like winning mindset kind of thing that it's like yes and the basically the mindset of like because the police finally got them and this is done like this is all of it's good and i i think as podcast hosts especially in the true crime area a lot of that really falls on us because it's how we tell the story we've had multiple cases where you can tell from how we're going into it if it's one where we're like, we disagree wholeheartedly with the investigation. And we have a lot of others where you can tell reading it, we agree wholeheartedly with the investigation. And just the way that we're telling you what happened, telling this crime, really shapes the way that it's put out there. Yeah, and that feeds on a lot of how you react. And I, as a podcast host and a podcast listener, 
that's that's so true when I'm listening to other podcasts and you can tell what their feelings are. And a lot of the times it just drives your own emotions towards the end, whether you're either cheering or you're sneering. Yeah. I think one thing, though, that we always try to do is, I mean, we're we're very upfront. I am very uncomfortable with the death penalty in any case. That's it's not something I like, agree with. And so I- any case I do um, that ends with a death penalty conviction, it always makes me really uncomfortable. And I know I've brought that up uh, quite a few times. No, there's a couple episode chunk where I <laughs> said it like three episodes in a row. And it was like, okay, yeah, Tyler, you said this. We get it. But <laughs> I mean, you know, I think that's an important thing to stand by. But I rarely do it from the lens of, you know, looking at the police and justice holistically in all these crimes where that might not be a topic that's brought up. But just because it's not part of the narrative that's out there doesn't mean that it isn't a huge part of it. Yeah, absolutely. So we were both extremely appreciative to be included in this article. It opened our eyes and it's giving us a lot to think about. And it's a very, very valid point. What's going to happen to true crime podcasts in this era of defund the police? How are things going to change? How are resources going to change? How are podcast hosts going to do their research and find their resources, etc.? So if you haven't seen it already, hop on over to Vanity Fair. I think if you just search true crime, you can find it. Right now it's on the homepage, so it's really easy to find, but it's probably not going to be there for a long. New articles come out daily. And thank you again to Marissa Meltzer for including us in your article. We Our eyes are opened, and we are so appreciative that you found us. Yes. I mean, just to be included in an article along names like my favorite murder and serial i'm like holy shit (laughs) um again yes thank you marissa meltzer for uh writing this and including us well hello everyone this is blood and wine i'm Brittany. i'm tyler yeah i guess that might have been confusing if you were like who the hell are you people (laughs) as we spent the first chunk saying that (laughs) how can i find you in this article if i don't know who you are well you clicked on this episode, so I hope you know who we are. Hi. I know. I'm like, yeah, read the title. It's it's Blood and Wine. But yes, that's Brittany. <laughs> I'm Tyler. We're siblings. We like true crime and we like wine. Definitely. Well, a couple of weeks ago, this is delayed on my part, but so here's a little bit of a self-promotion um, that I'm going to be doing. I have another Instagram account that I do with one of my best <laughs> friends. It's called bookshelf besties and you guys i read a shit ton like this is something we've talked about it's something that i'm really working towards in 2020 and hey quarantine has helped a lot i read a book recently and i shared it on our blood and wine podcast because it was so good and i highly recommend this to you guys and so i just wanted to bring it up as like in my current news recommendations portion that i'm carving out here at the beginning Mm -hmm. so it's called my sister the serial killer by Oyinkan Braithwaite. And it is a phenomenal story about these two sisters. Like the title says, one of them's a serial killer. The other is constantly going around cleaning up her sister's messes, literally, and, you know, metaphorically. But it's a quick read. It's a few hundred pages. I read it in like a day because I I could not put this book down. It's so good. It's so well written. It's more of a comedy than you would think reading the title. But 
it just flows so well. I highly, highly recommend this book. So if you're looking for your next uh, poolside read, but you're not into like rom-com stuff, grab this book. Who's going to the pool? My pool is still closed. Mine's open. Oh, well, must be nice. (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, I'm making you mail that to me since, I don't know, we'll see each other next in 2024. Um, but But will you really read it, though? Because I will. I'm going to the post office tomorrow. Yes, I will read it. Because just the little bits you've told me, which you haven't spoiled it, which is nice, because usually I'm never going to read a lot of the books Brittany reads, so she feels free to spoil everything, and I'm totally down for that. Uh, But this one, other than what you just shared, I don't really know what it's about. And you are not the first person who's told me I have to read this one. My friend Jennifer told me I have to read it, like, yes. And it's like her debut novel, right? Yeah, it is. And so I am like, okay, let's get more of this. I need more. (laughs) Okay. Yes. When you go to the post office tomorrow, put that in a Ziploc in a manila envelope. I don't know. Send it my way. Send it down south. (laughs) Mail it, please. (laughs) But yes. Put a stamp on it. Yes, I will send it your way. So, Brittany, I know the next thing that you wanted to talk about uh, that you shared, um, Kind of leads pretty well into the topic, kind of ties it in. So uh, do you want me to do topic first, or do you want to talk about this? And I don't know, I'll have a big surprise at the end what the topic <laughs> is. Um, You know what? I think I'm going to go into this other recommendation, because I bet a lot of our listeners are already watching it. Mm, already watching it, already have binged it. Uh, okay, yeah, go for it. And then uh, listeners, what? just wait. So many of you are about to be like, oh my god, I know the topic. But, you know. So at the time of you guys listening to this episode, if you're listening to it when it came out, there's been three episodes that have dropped on HBO of the documentary I'll Be Gone in the Dark with Michelle McNamara. I believe it's like six or ten. I can't remember what the total episodes are, but we're smack dab in the middle of that. And I guarantee some of y'all have been watching it and I have been watching it right alongside with you guys. And it is done so very well. So speaking of Oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm about to admit this. So I haven't actually read her book. After just talking about all the books I'm reading, this is one I have not gotten to. It's been on my to-be-read pile for way too long. But if you guys only saw how many books I have around my apartment right now, you'd understand that sometimes it's hard. But Well, and you've had it on like, (laughs) I'm 78th in line at the library for like a thousand years now, right? Yeah, and now it's not looking like it's going to be available anytime soon because, again, the docuseries just came out. It's been in the process for a while, so a lot of people are reading it, and the book is just fucking phenomenal is what I've heard. So, and fully believe, I know it's going to be fucking phenomenal when I read it. But, yeah, so I recommend watching this HBO series along with us. It's awesome. So, for those of y'all that haven't guessed, that are like, okay, what the hell's I'll Be Gone in the Dark... And the reason is because just like the show I'll Be Gone in the Dark, our topic for this episode is the Golden State Killer. And, I mean, once we saw the news just a couple weeks ago that he pled guilty and it it really feels like a closing chapter on this decades-long nightmare, we, we knew we had to do this. And we don't often have the opportunity to do cases that are really timely. A lot of the times, 
cases that are, you know, currently in court. There's not a ton of information out there. And we like to we like to tell y'all about the cases when we're actually able to dive into a lot of the details and tell y'all about them. But this case, because of what it is, there is not a um a drought of detail. I don't think that's a phrase. There's a wealth like of detail. Yeah. There's not a detailed drought going on here. There's a detailed monsoon. And so we knew, yes, we're doing this. So we've done this a few times before, like in our cults episode where we went over the People's Temple cult of Jonestown, where this is another one Brittany and I are going to be doing the same case and really going to be able to dive in and give a lot more detail. This case is so fucked up and so long and prolonged that just one of us doing it wouldn't do it justice. So, uh, yeah, for this episode, we're doing the Golden State Killer, which, uh, by the way, Michelle McNamara, who wrote I'll Be Gone in the Dark, she coined the term Golden State Killer. So the fact that that is very much like permeated our vernacular, not just in like the true crime community, but you say Golden State Killer, and it's it's like saying Ted Bundy or... I don't know, other killers with names that aren't coming to mind, which is embarrassing because it's episode <laughs> 114 of our true crime <laughs> podcast. Uh, but yes, so we're, uh, yeah, Golden State Killer. That is us. That's our case today. Yes. And the fact that this case is timely when it first started in the 70s is fucking mind-blowing because, and that's one of the things as we go through the details of this case, and you guys, like Ty is saying, This case is chock full of so much that there's a lot we're only going to be able to skim the surface on unless you want us to do like a six hour episode. And even then, it's not going to be enough. There are an ungodly amount of documentaries on this. There's not only this HBO series, but The Golden State Killer has been on Unsolved Mysteries, Case Files, Forensic Files, etc. There's one on, oh gosh, I'm so sorry, I don't remember the name of this one, but on CNN, which... It would be HLN because HLN is owned by CNN and it's just a full like documentary, multiple episodes about the Golden State Killer and all of this happening before he was caught. So if you want to dive in, my God, there is plenty of information out there if you want further details. So we will try to do it justice, but y'all, there's a lot. Yeah. Also, uh, one thing that I just thought of is I like how... You know, I I had this big lead up of like, we're going to reveal the topic. This episode is probably titled Golden State Killer or the Golden State Killer, something like that. So topic's pretty obvious. And I did not think about that. I never think about that when we're doing this. I'm always like, ooh, the topic's a mystery. It's literally the title. It's generally not often a mystery, but that's okay. Um, But yeah. So anyway, that is our topic. And because of that... We're going to need some drinks. Um, so, Brittany, tell me what you're drinking. Uh, what is your wine today? All right. So I've actually got a story. You guys, I bought what I thought was a nice rosé. I was at Total Wine the other day, and I was like, this is totally happening. I'm about to go to the pool. Going to get some rosé. So I picked up one they had at the front of the store, and it turned out to be this insanely sweet pink wine that was only 7% alcohol. So I've juice. <laughs> I fucked up, y'all, and you know how much I hate sweet wines. So you definitely, bought a damn Capri Sun. <laughs> I, I bought a 
Capri Sun in a glass bottle. But lesson learned, look before you buy. Like, seriously, look before you buy. Don't ever assume. But you also know me, and you know that I'm trying, you know, to be not so wasteful, and I also absolutely cannot drink this damn wine. It's disgusting. So I was like, okay. I'm, I was on the phone with Tyler, and I was like, okay, I'm going to turn this into a spritzer, so I'm just going to add some sparkling water. So I had a pina colada sparkling water, and I added that. That didn't help. It tastes like shit. Like, you guys, it was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, looking back, Brittany called me during this. She's like, oh, fuck, which do you think? I have watermelon sparkling water and pina colada sparkling water. And I was like, ooh, pina colada. Mostly because I like pina colada sparkling water. Um, but looking back, I'm like, yeah, that doesn't sound like it'd be good with the sweet pink wine at all. Don't know what we were thinking. Thinking wrong. So you know what I did? I... Still, refused to give up. And I also realized I didn't name the wine. It was called Ron's Chillable Pink. So, again, I should have known better. Didn't even say rosé on the bottle. It does sound really dirty. It makes (laughs) me think of, like, obviously, you you know what it is. Anyway. His Chillable Pink. (laughs) 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 So, okay. I'm still not ready to give up. And I was like, all right, what do I have in my liquor cabinet? And by liquor cabinet, I mean, like, the counter in my kitchen, because I don't have a fucking cabinet. And I was like, you how can... You do have cabinets. You yeah, but have, I don't like, have... dishes in them. Yeah, there's just, like, dishes and food in them, not liquor. Liquor is on display. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I was like, I'm going to make a cocktail. I'm going to figure this out. And so I came up with what I can't come up with a good name for. I, I was, like, playing around with, like, gin spritz teeny, but it just sounds stupid. But... Whatever. I thought pink teeny, but Brittany didn't like that for the same reason she doesn't like chillable pink. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. he's he's got a he's got a pink teeny, if you know what I mean. Teeny pinky. That's my <laughs> <laughs> That's that's our sex in the city moment. <laughs> it happened. Okay, so let me tell you how I made this cocktail. It's yes. t- it's two ounces of this sweet wine. I think you could definitely use a white wine or a pink wine that's on the sweeter end, but no reds, please. Like, don't fuck this up completely. I used one ounce of gin. I had Bombay Sapphire. It's my favorite. It really makes a killer dirty martini. One ounce Aperol. And I put all of this in a, a cup with some ice and stirred it. So this is a stirred cocktail, or I guess you could shake it if you want to. I then poured it into a martini glass and topped it off with some watermelon Perrier because that's what I had. And it's fucking delicious. And then I also decided to garnish it with a lime. You can also squeeze the lime in if you want to add a little bit of acid. I recommend doing that because it just it needed that sour note a little bit. And you guys, I'm honestly pretty proud of myself. It's good. It's not... By any means, the type of cocktail I would normally order because it is still on the sweeter end, which is why I think the lime was really important to me to, to cut, give it some acid to cut that. But it's great for summertime. So basically, I'm kind of a mixologist now. I mean, sure. <laughs> no, just kidding. That takes a lot I mean, a, more a uh, time and <laughs> studying and things that I obviously didn't do. I threw some shit together in my kitchen. But what I came out with was good. Yeah, I mean, you're a mixologist in the same way, like, 
a college student who's like, oh, shit, what do I put this with, is. Or someone who's, like, gifted a bottle of cotton candy vodka or something like that, and they're like, how do I make this palatable? Okay, maybe maybe chocolate syrup and um, a milk, and I'll make it kind of like a, like a, ooh, maybe like a dessert white Russian, you know. The, the things we all do because we're too damn broke to either <laughs> throw away my alcohol we spent money on or refuse a gift, even if it's the worst thing ever. I hate vanilla vodka, but damn, I will drink it if it's free. You know, I also didn't say this wine that I bought, Ron's Chillable Pink, was like $13. So it was more than I normally pay for wine. So just my disappointment when I... I like fucking open the bottle, pour it in a glass, and take a drink, and nope, is yeah. awful. But anyway. Bad news bears. So I will be drinking a couple of those cocktails tonight. All right. But what wine did you pick? What about you? Well, I actually picked a wine that I'm going to drink as a wine today. And it's funny. I went to my little bodega nearby, like I usually do, and... I guess it must be obvious to anyone I tell the story to, i.e. when I told Brittany, she was like, yeah. But I walked in, and uh, the guy behind the counter is like, oh, we got some new wine in. And I was just like, oh my god, that's who I am to them. I'm the wine guy. Because I go in at least once a week, and usually twice a week, like once for the podcast, once or twice for me. Um, to get a bottle of wine that's different or whatever. So I'm like, yeah, yeah, probably 50% or more of the time they see me, I'm I'm getting wine. I'm the wine person to them. Great. But obviously I am. So anyway, <laughs> they got some new wines in. And this one that I chose, it is the 2019 Sun and Air Sauvignon Blanc from Western Cape, South Africa. And I don't think I've had a South African Sauvignon Blanc before, and I'm not sure what to, like, what it's going to taste like, because if I think geographically, I would assume it would be more similar to um, a New Zealand than, definitely, than, like, a continental Europe, but also more so, I would think, than, like, California, because... I mean, New Zealand's not on the Indian Ocean, it's on the Pacific, but it's like, there's just Australia in between. Just Australia and Indonesia. It's not a, I don't know, they're similar. Also, they're at similar latitudes, and I don't know, they were both colonized by the English, so I I, I don't know. I assumed it's going to be more like that, but I have no idea, and so, I don't know. But apparently, um, I read a little bit on this wine, and it was talking about how these Sauvignon Blanc grapes, they're planted at the foothills of the Parle Mountain, P-A-A-R-L, so I might have mispronounced it. Uh, But this mountain is the second largest granite outcrop in the world. So the soils, they're made of a lot of this decomposed granite. There's a ton of minerality in it. And it goes directly into a lot of the wines that are grown in this soil. And so this background, in combination with a lot of the different microclimates and the cool harvesting and the slow and cool fermentation, 
Um, this wine, it has a very concentrated fruit flavor and a very concentrated minerality, which I feel like you don't see a lot in Sauvignon Blanc. So I think Sauvignon Blanc, I definitely don't think concentrated flavor. No, I don't either. No, I mean, they're generally, in my mind, the lightest flavor-wise of any wine. Um, But this one, it is a tropical nose with hints of freshly cut grass and asparagus. And what? On the, I'm sorry, what? I, yeah, I don't I don't know. I've never had asparagus flavored wine before. Um but uh the palate it experiences a fresh and crisp acidity, which I'm like, okay, yeah, that's pretty typical of Sauvignon Blanc. And the grassiness, I'm like, okay, New Zealand. And so I'm like, well maybe asparagus just grassy. But I also am like, I don't know, when I think asparagus, I think of how we eat asparagus, which is like, hmm, how do we take this healthy thing and make it unhealthy as fuck drown that shit in butter Butter. and throw it on the grill which is amazing but i'm like "Uh, what so also this wine apparently it goes really well with sushi chicken and of course an asparagus salad so i i don't know but the bottle is super cute it's like this um oh i think we realized the name of it last episode the like wood carving Pictograph, I don't think is the right word. What are wood carving pictures called? I want to say it starts with a C. All I'm thinking of is citalopram. That's my old antidepressant. It's not that. Or cenote, <laughs> which is a sinkhole in Spanish. So it's neither <laughs> of those. Um, I don't know. Whatever. It's not carving. I know that much. Uh, but whatever the name is, some of our listeners are probably screaming it at me right now. But I don't know it. I can't hear you. But this wine, it's... um. Anyway, that's the label. It's blue. The writing is in this, like, almost Art Deco golden black font. I really like it. It's... Yes. And it's a twist-off, which we love. I'm pouring extra on purpose. I see your eyes, Brittany, but <laughs> this is going to go back in the fridge, and I don't want to have to get up because I'm lazy. Oh, ooh. What does it smell like? Very grassy and citrusy. You know, I might have been onto something when I said I think it might be similar to a New Zealand one, because I was kind of just bullshitting myself through that train of thought. Um, oh, you sounded, but- I mean, it honestly sounded very legit, because they are on similar latitudes, so... Yeah. No. I mean, yeah, but lots of things are similar. La- so is Chile. Okay. Well, have you had a Chilean Sauvignon Blanc? I actually think I have. I was about to say, I don't even know if they actually have those, but... They, they do. Um, anyway, I've had a South American one. But, um, yeah. No, I'm excited. I'm going to go pop uh, her back in the fridge, and then I'm going to... I'm ready to cheer. Maybe we cheers first, so I have the bottle with me. Yeah, because you're going to have to cheer solo. I love you, but I'm using a martini glass and I'm just working on... My goal is to not spill this all over myself. Yeah, if you cheers with a martini (laughs) and you spill less than half of your drink, you won. So just don't cheers. (laughs) If you spill less than half your drink, you didn't really cheers. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Honestly, also, if you drink a martini that's full without looking like simultaneously a mom putting on mascara and a fish, <laughs> you know, where you kind of, 
the side of it, you kind of get on its level while it's on the table and just kind of like envelop your mouth on a side of it. Y'all know what I'm saying. If you don't amoeba the glass, you're not drinking it, right? <laughs> but okay, it's I'm gonna so cheers true. solo. Um, All right. I guess. Wow, it's like my birthday. <laughs> cheers, me. Cheers. <laughs> oh my gosh. Ooh, oh. your face. What What are your thoughts? I am so Whoa. sad I'm not drinking this wine with you. Whoa. That is unlike any wine I have ever had in my entire life. I'm going to, I need a second drink to process. Wow. You know what? This is the perfect wine if you are someone who is not a big fan of Sauvignon Blancs because of like how light, how watery they can be. If you want something that's going to punch you more, but you still like a, that very citrusy wine, this is it. It's like viscous. It, it has the viscosity, I would say, of like a Chardonnay. Oh. And um, it's not super cold, but if my high school chemistry mind uh, can remember this correctly, things usually get more viscous as they cool down. So, um, I don't know, that's how magma and vodka work, so I assume that means everything. Um, Seriously can't believe I'm not getting to drink this wine. I want to go find it right now. It is. It has almost a savory quality. Like, it's very citrusy up front, lots of lemon. But the second half, I don't know how to describe it. It's, I guess it's the minerality. It's a very round, on-your-tongue flavor. And it's almost savory, like like maybe a cheese kind of savory. It, I don't, I've never had an umami wine before. This is good. I don't know what the hell they're talking about with asparagus. I'm not getting that at all. But wow, if you've ever wanted a Chardonnay that tastes like a Sauvignon Blanc and is unoaked because, ew, this is it. And maybe that's, I don't know if that's all Sauvignon Blancs from South Africa, but if it's very granite heavy, similar to terroir, I don't think they'd be that different. Um, I, I'm a fan of this. This is a white wine you can have with a meal and not worry about it. Ooh. And by that, I mean this is a Sauvignon Blanc you can have with a meal. Because I feel like a lot of times Sauvignon Blanc is so light that if you have it with any kind of food that's, you know, more punch you in the mouth than like, I don't know, a herb salad, you kind of lose the Sauvignon Blanc. I don't no. know. I don't know. Sauvignon Blancs are really good with spicy food, like with Thai food. They are. They are. But it's more of like... I feel like when you have it with a very flavorful food and stuff, you it's more about, like, the acidity as opposed to, like, the entire flavor profile. Because I feel like you do lose a lot of the more delicate floral notes when you have Sauvignon Blanc with food that's not, like, you know, rabbit food or saltine crackers. Yeah. God, that's sad. I really just made myself want some pad thai like no one's business. And I got this text earlier. I know you, no one cares about this, but I do. I got a text earlier from DoorDash that was like 50% off your order if you pick it up. So I think I'm going to be, not tonight, I'm drinking, but tomorrow uh, for dinner, I'm thinking I might get some fucking pad thai. Yeah, I'm I'm really craving some green curry now. Um, but this wine, I am a fan. Damn, y'all. I'm not a fan of it in the way of, like, 
is it in my top Sauvignon Blancs? Because it it honestly is so different than any Sauvignon Blanc I've ever had that it it feels like its own varietal. So, yes, if you see Sun and Air, pick up a bottle. It was also like ten bucks, ten ninety nine at my bodega. So I'm sure if you found it at like a liquor store or like a Total Wine or something, it might be closer to like the eight nine dollar range. Nice. All right. Well, we have talked about our wine or cocktails in my case, and I've already been drinking on mine because it's a cocktail and I made it and I've been drinking it. Um, but like I said, that it's sweeter, great for the summertime. I need the little bit of lime and I I think one ounce of Aperol and one ounce of gin was a really good amount to the two ounces of the sweet wine because I can taste a little hints of the gin and the Aperol, but neither of them is overpowering. So, and I will say, I don't really think the watermelon uh, sparkling water is necessary. You could just use regular like club soda um, and it would be just as wonderful. But I'm, you know what? But what if you had like... An orange sparkling water. Because you know when you have an Aperol drink, you have a little orange twist? Yeah, that could be really good. I think you guys should um, try making this and tell me what you think and tell me if I'm crazy. Because, I mean, I think it. I did well. All right. But with that, Tyler, I think it's time that we dive straight in headfirst to the Golden State Killer. So why don't you kick us off? Okay. So the sources we used for the Golden State Killer... We used uh, the Wikipedia page for the Golden State Killer. We used an article on the Unsolved Mysteries fandom site, an article from Unresolved.com, an article from NPR by Laura Wamsey, Wamsey, maybe, and an article from KCRA Sacramento News by the KCRA staff. And we also used years of hearing about this case because there are definitely those nuggets I guarantee we're going to throw in here and there because they'll pop in our heads when we get to a certain point. Uh, yep. So the Golden State Killer, throughout the years, he's been known by many names. Golden State Killer really, I mean, it was coined by Michelle McNamara, and it's a decade old, if that. If that. It was like 2013, I believe. So... He's been known by a ton of different names, and y'all gotta remember, this is all the same person. He's known as the Diamond Knot Killer, um, Eron's, or E-A-R-O-N-S, which stands for Easteria Rapist, Original Night Stalker. He's known as the Easteria Rapist, the East Bay Rapist, East Side Rapist, Original Night Stalker. He's known as the Night Stalker. Um, and as the Visalia Ransacker. But today, he's most widely known as the Golden State Killer, and he is one of America's worst serial rapists and serial killers. This guy is truly a a monster. He encompasses every aspect of a human that is a monster. There's no better word for it. Yeah, I mean, he's... this. This entire case is just horrifying beginning to end. And it begins with his identity as the Visalia Ransacker. So it's been long suspected, um, or was long long suspected, now confirmed, that the training ground for the Golden State Killer, um, it was the city of Visalia, California. 
this is where he started, where his crimes, where he built his crime foundation, I guess. Um, So over a period of 20 months, from April of 1974 to December of 1975, the Visalia Ransacker is believed to have been responsible for one murder and around 120 different burglaries. Most of the Ransacker's activities, they involve breaking into houses, going through or vandalizing possessions from the owners, scattering women's clothes, like their specifically their underwear, bras, um, stealing coins and like low value or personal items, his little trinkets. But he'd often ignore like a shit ton of cash or banknotes or like valuable jewelry and shit that was in plain sight because he wasn't doing it for like, I'm gonna get money. It was trinket so he could remember his crimes and his terror. But then in 1976, he set his eyes on Sacramento, California. So in an interview, FBI case agent Marcus Knutson said about, you know, these crimes that were terrorizing Sacramento in the late 70s. He said, if you lived in Sacramento during that time frame, you have a story of what happened and where you were and what was going on. Everybody knows about East Area Rapist, Golden State Killer here in Sacramento. During that time frame, everybody was in fear. We had people sleeping with shotguns. We had people purchasing dogs. I think locksmith's business went way out of control because of the fact that everyone was changing locks on their doors. Like when we, we've talked about a couple different killers and crimes that really terrorized and kind of held a town hostage. Yeah. But I don't think we've talked about anything quite like Sacramento during the East Area Rapist. No, no. And as we go forward in this case and we start talking about numbers, it becomes really difficult to stomach and honestly really difficult to believe. Like that one person is responsible for all of these heinous acts. I think that's one of the things that I've Mm -hmm. always struggled to wrap my head around. And we've done so many horrible monsters, but this guy, he takes the cake in so many ways. And you might wonder, like, okay, well, why why does he have so many different names? Why wasn't he known as the Vestalia Ransacker throughout it all? Or maybe then he becomes the Vestalia Rapist. A big part of it is it took a long time for the people investigating this to realize, holy shit, this is one person. Because there were times when the Vesalia Ransacker, the East Area Rapist, the original Night Stalker, they're they're all thought of as like, oh, we have these three different uh, crimes, these three different people doing these things in different areas. Oh no, it's the same person. He's just mobile. Or I mean, it, they happened in different years and stuff, but he's not staying in one place for decades. So in the Sacramento area, this is where the East Area Rapist, he progressed from burglary to her rape in mid-1976. Initially, a lot of his crimes centered on the then-unincorporated areas of Carmichael, Citrus Heights, and Rancho Cordova. The, these are areas east of Sacramento, so East Area Rapist. And his initial MO, he would stalk these middle-class neighborhoods at night, and he would search for women that were alone and in these one-story homes. Maybe they were near a school, a creek, a trail, 
or some kind of open space where he could have a quick escape. He's not going to be hemmed in by houses and fences on either side or by just, oh shit, I'm caught. Well, no, I'm stuck in the middle of the neighborhood. He is planning his escape route from the minute he sets his eyes on a target. And he had been seen during all his crimes, during his escapes. He was doing this neighborhoods. He was seen so many times, but every time he got away, he fled. And that's a common theme throughout this entire case, is how many times he got away. Most of his victims had seen or they'd heard a prowler who being on their property before the attacks, and many of them had experienced break-ins prior. Police believed that the East Area Rapist who was doing this was conducting this extensive reconnaissance on this neighborhood, you know, looking in windows, prowling in yards, creeping around everything um, before he'd actually pick a place to attack. And then also, as far as the break-ins happening in the weeks leading up to his attack, he would sometimes go into the houses of his future victims. He might unlock windows from the inside, unload guns, um, plant different things he'd use to strangle people, different ligatures around the house hidden. Because he was he was preparing the thing, the one piece of this crime really that he doesn't have control of is the space you know is the location because that's someone else's home that's there could be any number of variables there but he's breaking in prior to his crimes and making sure that he owns that space too and that's fucking terrifying because it's not he breaks it and then has to find out the layout of the house oh he's already been here he knows exactly you know, around that corner is the hallway to the bedrooms, and the third door is the bedroom that um, his victim lives in. And under this, I don't know, couch is where he hid the rope he's going to use to strangle them. And, oh my god. The, Fucking terrifying. It is, and like this preemptive planning and making sure his executions are going to succeed, it, it is terrifying. This It's beyond horrifying. Like, not only to know he got into these people's homes once to attack them, but knowing that he was in their homes multiple times to plan it out. Yeah. He would often even, like, call his future victims. And this would sometimes be, like, months in advance of him attacking them. And he did this so he could learn their routines. You know, what time did they leave the house and go to work? What time they usually get in? What days did they go to the grocery store? What days did they maybe have friends over? What were their patterns? So that he could gather as much information as he could and use it all against his victims. It's the, oh my fucking God. I know I'm not adding much because there's just, what do you say? You know, what do you say to that? Nothing. There's nothing. There's like nothing I can add. Like, it's just, I'm just sitting here being honestly just afraid and not being able to really imagine this. So, no, I mean, I've talked about it a lot of times how I one of my big issues with like killers and stuff in Hollywood things is they're always seen as this like master planner with all these like spinning plates and all this shit going on. And I'm like, okay, that doesn't fucking happen. In the case of the Golden State Killer, that's exactly what was happening. Yes. You think of the 
James Bond villain who's like, aha, I planned this from the beginning and all this shit. That's so unrealistic. And it's like, okay, sure you did. How would you know that Daniel Craig goes to this place to get Starbucks and all this shit? Well, you know what? The Golden State Killer did that kind of investigating and basically knew everything about their victim, about situation, to be able to use in their advantage. Originally, he targeted women who were either alone in their homes or alone with their children. But then he started getting this preference for attacking couples. His usual method, he would break through a window or a sliding glass door, and he would wake up the couple that was sleeping in bed with a flashlight. Like, he'd be able to break in, get into their room, and shine a flashlight into their faces before they would wake up. And he usually had a gun on him that he'd threaten them with. He would then uh, tie up his victims with ligatures, which were often shoelaces um, that he either found or he brought with them or he'd previously placed in the house. He would blindfold and gag them with towels that he like ripped into strips. And the female victim, uh, she was usually forced to tie up her boyfriend, husband, that was with her before she was bound. So he made them play a part in this more than just, I don't know, made them be involved in a deeper way. I I don't know. No, I see what you're saying. It's like, he's not just doing this to them. He's making them participate. Yeah, that's yes. There, that's where, yes. So these bindings that he'd tie up his victims in, they were often so tight that his victims' hands would go numb from, like, losing blood circulation. And because they were tied up for hours. And most of their victims, like, even when they finally got untied, like, everything was tied enough that it, like, damaged them kind of thing. He would often separate the couple, and he would sometimes stack dishes on the back of the boyfriend or husband, the guy that was there. And he's in like a, I don't know, four on the floor, like back, like a table position kind of thing. And he'd place like plates and shit on his back and would tell him like, if I hear these dishes rattle, I'm going to kill you both. So his male victims, they're forced to listen to their wives, girlfriends, friends being brutally raped and cannot move for fear of them both getting killed. Um, and then the East Area Rapist, he would move the women into the living room and would rape them repeatedly for several hours. Sometimes he might pretend to leave and come back. Sometimes he might hide and they would think he's gone, and then he would shine his flashlight so they knew he was there and then rape them again. Like, this went on hours and all of this started in june of 1976 with um, his first known rape in the area in the rancho cordova area but by the time october came around that's when he had started attacking couples and women in carmichael and citrus heights and by then his number of rapes that are known is up to four by the end of the year so in just six months Ten women had been raped in their homes. And at first, the media really wasn't reporting on this. It wasn't in the news much, because there were a lot of concerns that if word got out, this attacker, this rapist, would flee and would never be found. But 
after more and more people were victims and the fact that there people didn't know there wasn't warning it wasn't known there was right. this fucking i don't know what's the phrase, wolf in the sheep's pen and no one's being told about it yeah like i get the idea of like oh we don't want them to run if they think we're onto them um but not telling people like hey there's this fucking monster rapist out here who in six months at least 10 women have been raped I'm like, no, there is no doubt in my mind these numbers are much lower than what they actually were. Just because people, especially in the 70s, with how much sexual and gender discrimination went along with this, how much bias there was, um, and judgment of victims of rape, that there are so many more women who never came forward, probably have never come forward to this day, that were victims of his. So... I'm like, there. there's at least 10. Who knows how many the number actually is? And again, this is just the first six months. Eventually, the media news started reporting on this. And people in the area freaked the fuck out. Rightfully so. Yes. So, like, burglar alarms. So many people in the Sacramento area were like, oh shit, we need these. They had had to put up waiting lists to install them people bought air horns like (laughs) air horns kind of thing i don't know if that's a universal thing or if that's just an america thing i don't know (laughs) international listeners do y'all know what the hell an air horn is because also i don't think i've ever seen an air horn in my life i think i just know of air horns from tv where would you buy one i have no idea no do can you even buy one anymore do people buy air horns is that a thing I don't know, but in the 70s in Sacramento, everyone was buying air horns. But it's like, that was just the, the fact that things things like that always, to me, put a lot of things in perspective. Because you can hear gun sales went up or burglar alarm sales went up. Right. Air horns went up because that is how people were like, well, if he attacks me... I can, this is how I can alert my neighbors because that's what other options do I have? And that's fucking terrifying. It is. People were also installing peepholes on their front door, which wasn't really a thing before this. Like, you know, someone's at your door and you just open it to see who it is. People were getting new locks on anything and locking everything up that they could because who knows? Who's going to who's gonna be next? And the, the attacks never stop. They keep coming and coming. More victims are uh, being attacked. And so the, the entire area is just in a full-on panic. Well, and also think about the fact that before this, a lot of people didn't even lock their doors in general. Like, that wasn't really yeah. a thing. And we've talked about this and how the 70s very much influenced this, like, lock your fucking doors thing. And, I mean, there's still tons of latchkey kids and whatnot into the 80s, but things change. And that's another theme throughout this entire case, is a lot of things are changed forever because of what was happening in California at the time the Golden State Killer was killing and raping. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think a lot of this is a 
probably a very large part of why to do most things in your house, you know, open your windows or the door stuff, you unlock them because their default state is locked. Yes. You don't take action to lock them. Your windows are always locked. If you want to open it, you have to unlock them. You don't have to, I don't know, make sure to lock them. And I think that kind of change in perspective on things and just how how people have their windows, have their doors, have all this shit is in no small part due to the East Area Rapist, but the surge in serial killers and serial rapists and the surge in, I guess, more media attention on it, more awareness on it that happened from the 60s, 70s onward. And as these attacks were happening throughout the Sacramento area, investigators were able to start piecing together a possible profile. And remember, this is not yet connected to anything that happened in Visalia before. They believed that whoever was doing this, whoever the East Area Rapist was, he lived in the area, and he might have been a police officer, a former officer, someone who basically knew how to do a stakeout, knew how to investigate a person to the point where they knew all the details. So, could be a cop. Hmm. But until this point, the East Area Rapist had only struck in Sacramento County, not inside the actual city of Sacramento. So, jurisdictions being what they were in the late 70s, being fucking bullshit. I mean, there's a lot of issues with that shit now, but, like, Sacramento was like, damn, we can't help. Shucks. But that soon changed, because he attacked a woman who lived one block within the Sacramento city limits, and then he stole her car. So now that within the jurisdiction of Sacramento City, that's weird to say, but I guess city of Sacramento... Um, because there was a break-in, rape, grand theft auto, I guess, they were able to engage, and the city's rape detail and, like, special rape sex crimes investigators were able to join the case, join the investigation. I think it's kind of fucking stupid. They didn't before, but that's just me. Yeah, jurisdiction laws and shit, they're... They're pretty messed up, and we've talked about it time and time again in cases how things are missed when law enforcement isn't working together. And this case is a gigantic example of that. Yeah, and this is during the time when a lot more, because it very much happens today, a lot more um, jurisdictions were basically having a dick measuring contest online. Yeah. Whose dick's bigger? We're going to solve this case. We're not sharing our info. And I'm like, these are fucking people's lives. This is not points on a tally board and you get a little pretty gold star like, yay, you caught the killer. No, these are people's lives. And you being like, well, we're not sharing our data. We want the credit. Go fuck yourselves. It's not a goddamn school project. It's people being raped and murdered and their lives being destroyed. And you're being selfish. And even with these additional investigators, the additional resources and everything, there was still no arrest. And the East Area Rapist was very well aware of this and started getting more brazen. He was now taunting his victims. He would call them and leave messages on their answering machines taunting them. And 
he did this with most of his victims. The fact that he's taunting his victims just shows how sick this person is. Like, that not only are they going in and staking out the homes, planning it out, basically having a mental blueprint of the house, hiding things there, then raping for hours upon hours and taunting while he's there. There's further taunting with phone calls to just remember that he is still out there. Like, it is sick. Yes, this is just a sick game to him. Not people's fucking lives. Yeah. That he's destroying. So with everything that's happening, there were town hall meetings all the time being held in Sacramento and in the Sacramento area in order to let the public know what what, what was happening with these crimes. Let them know about them. And some of the people, men, men in the audience, um, they couldn't believe that a man would, quote unquote, let their wife be raped. Can we just say toxic masculinity? Uh, yeah. One of the guys at this town hall, at a town hall meeting, even got up during it and said that if the rapist broke into his house, he'd be ready. That man and his wife would later become victims themselves. And it's believed that the rapist was at the meeting and followed them home and attacked them that night. Or shortly after. I don't know if it was exactly that night or if it was a couple nights later and he used that night and the subsequent ones to stake the house out. Yeah. There was even a photo that was taken at this meeting with everyone in it. It is a photo of dozens of people. And one of these people looking back at the camera is the East Area Rapist. It's chilling. You can look this photo up online. It is absolutely chilling to know that he's in that crowd. And the fact that he's brazen enough that he knows that investigators are going to be able to know he's in that picture. But so are a lot of people. And it's so hard to piece a crime from, let's look at this person and see if they fit rather than let's look at the case and see what person it identifies kind of thing. Exactly. And I'm glad they didn't just look at the photo and they're like, all right, we're going to, that guy looks like the sketch. That's totally probably him because that's not, you know, as much as eyewitness accounts can be helpful, they can also be inaccurate. Especially when all this is happening in the middle of the night and they're first woken up by being blinded with flashlights and shit. Like, yeah. Well, and I feel like he was wearing a mask too. Like, I'm pretty sure he was disguising his identity. So even if you could see him, I don't think you could see him. I'm pretty sure. Well, I know there were a couple witnesses, at least in the beginning, being seen escaping quite a bit, never caught. Right. There's sketches of who he might be. I guess that's right. There are sketches. But, I, I yeah, I would assume with how much planning is going into this, I would assume he's wearing a balaclava ski mask. Yeah. Baklava. He did. He brought He's wearing bak- a delicious, he- like, <laughs> Lebanese layered phyllo pastry treat on his face. Dude, I love those. Sydney makes, like, so... Her baklava is so good fucking jealous 
You're jealous that I've had it or jealous that she can make it? Or both? Both. <laughs> I've never had Sydney's baklava. I have never tried making it. Although, again, I've never tried. Maybe I make better baklava. Maybe I put some pistachios on it because I'm a bad bitch. No, I'm pretty sure she does. Bad that bitches too. use pistachios. <gasps> that should be a t shirt. Whatever. I want to I want a shirt that says bad bitches use pistachios. Anywho. Um that's not what we're talking about. Yeah, he but yes, he was probably wearing balaclava something to disguise his face, because there are sketches, but with how many attacks he was doing One but, would think. Well, and his identity is still so unknown yeah so i i i imagine yeah he's doing a lot more to hide his face and by the end of 1977 19 more women had been attacked and that brought the total up to 29 that's almost an attack every other week my god and so the maps these investigators had where you know they would put little pins in where the attacks happened those Fields of pins were now growing, and he was moving. He wasn't just attacking the east side now. He'd now moved into Sacramento. He knew the investigators there were part of it now looking for him, so he was like, well, another fucking, I don't know, checkerboard to play on. And then, as he continued, he was still taunting his victims, calling them, and then he started giving them death threats over the phone, and that just became part of his M.O., at this point, the putting dishes on the back of the man, that was now part of his MO, telling his victims that he'd murder them both if he heard a single dish break or rattle or anything. That went from being something he'd done a couple times to this is every single time, every single victim this happens to. So Detective Carol Daly, she was one that was working to catch the East Area Rapist. She led a lot of the town hall meetings that were happening. And she spoke to KCRA, the new station there in Sacramento, in 1977. And she'd interviewed a lot of the victims. And they all gave a pretty similar story. She said, A light is usually shining in their eyes. The woman is usually the first one to awaken. And the only thing that is visible is the round light and the shadow of a gun being pointed directly at her. As these attacks continued... A lot of different community groups were meeting with police and sheriff's deputies, but that wasn't the only way that women were responding. You know, yes, they're doing community groups and community advocacy, but also they're fucking fed up and angry. And women were gathering on the Sacramento courthouse steps. They were marching in support of rape awareness and demanding funding for rape crisis centers. Because even today... I mean, we've, uh, the city of Austin in the past multiple years has been under huge scrutiny because of how many backlogged rape kits we have be, that just aren't being looked into, that, you know, rapists could easily be found. The DNA's right there. It matches someone in the system. They're just not being tested. The resources aren't there. The money is not being pushed towards these rape victims. And the stigma of rape was so much more in the 70s. Not to say it isn't fucking still, still. here now, but... Uh, yeah. And 
these women, these victims, and these women who saw themselves as potential victims, and basically, they're all sisters coming together, and they're like, we need to fucking fix this shit, because if we're going to catch this monster, y'all need to fucking take him seriously, not just because now our husbands and boyfriends are involved, but y'all need to take our goddamn rape seriously, and y'all need to start fucking doing shit about this. Yes. And that, like so many things, being said in the 70s and still needs to fucking be said today in 2020. It's been more than 40 years. You know... Still having the same goddamn conversations. We're still having the same conversations about equality, gender, race. I mean, it's such a fucked up system. The fact that... We have the same conversations today that we've had for the last hundred years is fucking disgusting. And can we all just agree that we need to s- put our foot down and do something about it for real this time? Not not saying that people weren't working their asses off for it for the last forever, because they have been. But mm-hmm. can we all just come together? Why is this such an issue? I know. I don't. I just don't understand that it's a controversial idea that human rights matter don't really understand why that's uh why that's now a politicized political issue but i guess here we fucking are yeah when did that become something that wasn't just something that should obviously be uh yes one of the things though that a lot of the women and the protesters were fighting for and focusing on was the outdated phone systems that made it really hard for victims to get a hold of the police. Like, when I said, when I was talking about the air horns being bought out, it's like, that's how you contact someone and get help. That's literally the best option. Because in 1977, Whoa. emergency calls were still ones where operators were patching you through to the police, where you pick up the phone and you're like, hello, operator, I'd like to talk to the police. Sacramento County, please. And then, you know, they have the switchboard and they do the patching you through one moment and you that that's how you get a call of the police oh my god 911 was not a thing or if you're in the uk 999 or if you're anywhere else in the world i don't know what your three-digit emergency police code is but that was not a thing in america yet in 1977 in sacramento dude dude you know what that means? That means our pa- I'm sorry, this is like a stupid thing to just realize, but our parents, when they were teenagers, teenagers. there was no 911. Yeah, the whole how you and I grew up from like, basically our first memories of toddlers are, you know, being told in preschool or daycare or whatever, like, 911 is when you need an adult to help. And j- like that, I've been brought into... You call 911 when you need help and you need an adult. And and our parents didn't, like, 911 wasn't a thing until they're, what, teenagers or college. Or, like, what the fuck? It's crazy. There are just so many things that I know, like, I grew up with or part of my generation, my entire generation. Like, oh, yes. That is so jarring to hear, like, oh, shit, <laughs> that's a just my generation thing. Or, like... It's a new thing to have been born into. Oh yeah, nine one one's already a thing because I don't know how much time it took for nine one one to finally get become a thing. 
and then get adopted by everyone and then have the public awareness campaign that it's everything because all that happened way before I was born. Yeah. Well, and I will say we all think about like lives of our parents and grandparents. And when you think of the span of what was happening in the world when they were born versus what happened, you know, for older generations after they pass, but or like as they're in well into adulthood, we look at it and we're like, oh my gosh, that's so crazy. When you were born, there weren't microwaves. But at the same time, someone could look at the like world through the lens of our generation and have the same exact thoughts. So I think that is truly just a generational thing. And for some reason, it still baffles us. Like it baffles me all the time thinking Mm -hmm. about these things that didn't exist. And then everything changed within the span of a lifetime. But that's pretty much everyone's lifetime. Like we all experience that, you know? Yeah. And you know what we can do to make that better is be fucking dynamic and listen to younger generations, not be like, well, my generation, I learned this. This is math. I get it. It's weird that there's new math and that's taught somehow different in, (laughs) I don't understand it. But I also am like, listen, I don't understand long division. And I did learn that. I don't know how to fucking do that anymore. I have a damn calculator. But (laughs) I'm like, all of these issues that are happening and stuff, you know, I feel like the instant reaction is like, well, I never had to deal with that. So is that a thing? Yes. And it's like, yes, it is a thing. Not everyone's experience is your experience. And so when Gen Z people are telling me things, it's like, no, it's fucking important to listen. Because, yeah, I'm a millennial. I don't have the same experience growing up as them. I remember when, you know, getting a cell phone in late middle school or high school was the craziest thing. Like, holy shit, you rich fucker. And it's flip phone. Yeah. And that's just not thing. Everything it's they're a lot more affordable. It, the, a smartphone is a lot more just the industry standard. And it, you know, I think kids being born today, and I say kids, but really people that are like teenagers stuff now have much different experience than I did with that. And we should fucking listen to that. I don't. I don't get the anywho, anywho. At this point in time, nine hundred one in Sacramento is not a damn thing. And at one point. Police even suggested that it might be faster if victims, instead of calling an operator and asking for 911, if they just called a neighbor for help. Maybe don't put that on your neighbor, considering it's the police's job. Yeah. And also, it's the middle of the fucking night. And you're suggesting, like, well, we we can't help you. Call, you know, Joel's next door. You can ring him. Just... You know, I I don't fucking know if they still used rotary phones in the late 70s. (laughs) I I don't think so. I'm sure it was buttons and shit. But it's like, okay. Hey, Joe. Yeah. Yeah. We're being raped and attacked and literally our lives are fucking in danger. I don't know. Can you call the police or come over and save us? I'm going to put all this responsibility on you. Yeah, no. The victims, the women in Sacramento, they were not having any of that shit. And they pushed back. And they were like, you know what we fucking need is this new technology we hear about that prioritizes emergency calls. You know, this thing that's called the 911 system. Yeah, we fucking need that. And so this case is a big part of why the 911 system is what it is today. But then there was a new escalation. Up until this point, what it was known, because yes, there is a murder connected to the 
Vasilia Ransacker. But so far, the East Area Rapist had not yet murdered someone. But that changed in February of 1978, when he became a killer. Brian and Katie Maggiore, they were walking their dog in the Rancho Cordova area, and that was when they crossed paths with the East Area Rapist. They tried to run away, but they were both shot and killed. And another man who was out walking came face-to-face with this attacker. That witness was actually an art student. And so he helped investigators come up with the first sketch. So I guess before this, oh, there, there actually weren't no sketch. sketches. Mm-hmm. So he, you know, like you said earlier, probably was in disguise or wearing a balaclava before. This one, because it was so different, it was outside. He, It wasn't like at their home or anything. He wasn't in disguise. I think and... I'm, I'm trying to remember, and I hope this is not wrong. I think they caught him when he was doing like that preliminary, like investigating the house, trying to get in, sneak around, sneaking around and shit. That may have been when they saw him and why he wasn't more hidden. And that may have been the reason he felt the need to kill them. That would make a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, but because this art student saw him face to face and survived, there was now a sketch. But the East Area Rapist, he was always, always one step ahead of the police. It was almost like he had some kind of insight into what they knew. And so he started moving beyond Sacramento County. There were two rapes that occurred in Modesto, California in 1978. And after those, there were attacks in Davis and Walnut Creek, which are nearish to Sacramento, but they're like outside the Sacramento area. And then towards the Bay Area, cities of Concord, San Ramon, San Jose, Danville, and Martinez also saw attacks and rapes by the East Area Rapist. So by the summer of 1979, over 50 rapes and two murders had been attributed to the East Area Rapist. But then nothing. There weren't any more rapes in the area, no more murders that could be attributed to him. And so by the beginning of the 1980s, it was pretty clear that for some reason or another, whatever happened, the East Area Rapist was no longer active in Sacramento. But unfortunately, as we all know, things were far from over. This is not the end. So the rapist eventually ventured down south to Southern California in 1979, and he would continue to terrorize the residents with rape and eventually murder until 1986. This is when he became known as the original Night Stalker. However, like we've mentioned before at the time, the rapes and murders of the East Area Rapist and the rapes and murders of the original Night Stalker, they were not connected. This was seen as a completely new and different situation. His first few Southern California victims were couples who were home together when they were attacked. On October 1st, 1979, a couple was woken up by a flashlight in their face and a voice that was urging them to wake up in Goleta, California. This was a smaller town about two hours west of LA and about a hundred miles south of anywhere this perpetrator had been assaulting people before. The wife, like 
the East Area Rapist did was made to tie up her husband before her hands were bound, again, so tightly that it completely cut off the flow of, of blood, and she was led into another room. The killer kept mumbling, I'll kill them, I'll kill them, as he rummaged through the house. This woman was still bound and blindfolded, and while this attacker is ransacking her home, she was able to hop to the front door, open it, and at this point in time, her leg bindings fell off, and so she started to run while screaming. Oh my god. But the perpetrator rushed to grab her and brought her back inside. The husband heard the screams of his wife in the front of the house, and he was also desperately trying to work himself free. And he did, and he crawled out the bedroom window. Thankfully, this couple lived next door to an FBI agent. The agent heard some commotion, and the couple escaped, and the perpetrator also was like, oh shit, nope, I gotta get the fuck out of here. And he hops on a bike, and the FBI agent is following him in his car, and unfortunately ended up losing him. Um, it's not a bike? I mean, okay, I know... Logically, that makes sense. It's easy to hide a bike. It makes no noise, you know, for getting away. And it, you know, bikes still go fast. But wow, I know my image of who he is is definitely not true. I'm imagining this cloaked figure, basically like a Dementor from Harry Potter, as the because he, as what this fucking monster is, hopping on a little ten speed, getting away. He got his little his baseball card in the in the spokes of the wheel to make it sound like a motorcycle, but um, but no. When I actually think about it, the actual horror of it really sets in. And yeah, of course he would have a bike because that's a silent getaway, and it's not fucking suspicious. It's not a car parked in front of someone's house. There's not a license plate on it for anyone to be able to identify. It's a fucking bike, and you know what bikes can do? They can go down alleyways. They can make turns cars can't do. So yeah, the FBI agent following him either on feet, which is slower, or in his car, which can't maneuver like a bike can, not going to catch him. Who who thinks of that? He actually also stole the bike. This was the bike he had found and brought to the home. As you're saying, it was like his mode of transportation. So it was originally assumed that this was just a terrible botched B&E, but it was later determined to be the East Area Rapist. But again, that's not known at this time. That was later. December 30th, 1979, a man named Dr. Robert Offerman and his girlfriend, Deborah Manning, they lived in a Goleta condo. And on this night, their neighbors heard like a few pops or whatever, but they just thought it was fireworks in the neighborhood in preparation for the New Year's Eve celebration that was going to be the next night. But in actuality, Robert and Deborah had been shot to death. When their bodies were discovered, there was a white cord around Robert's wrist, but it wasn't completely bound. And so it was likely that in the process of being woken up and tied up, Robert Offerman decided to fight back for his life. He was like, nope, this isn't happening. And he was shot four times with a thirty-eight pistol as a result. Deborah was found still bound, lying face down on Dr. Offerman's bed, and she had a single gunshot wound to the head. 
What the detectives found at the scene of the crime, though, it was eerily similar to a lot of the traits that Tyler talked about earlier about the East Area Rapist. So aside from the fact that this was murder, it played out the same. He attacked the victims while they were sleeping just hours after they'd been intimate. He helped himself even to Dr. Offerman's Christmas leftovers. And this is assumed to have been done after he murdered the couple. Oh, yeah. That was one thing um, I didn't mention in my case is during the times he would be raping his victims and it would be hours and, you know, sometimes he'd disappear. He would also, like, help himself to leftovers in the fridge and make it his own home. Like, fucking defile everything. That, I know, is not one of the important parts of all the horrible shit he did. But it's one of the things that sticks with me. Of, like, yeah, these victims that survived. Can they even go to the fridge without knowing the night he'd raped me? This is where he was. He was eating my leftovers. You know, know, having... Just the, like, the psychological shit of, like, having to actually go through the motions of throwing away the rest of the leftovers that he didn't eat. Like... The last person who was eating this was the man who attacked and raped me. Like, I cannot imagine how the 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 victims in this were able to live. Not only in, in the homes where it happened, but go on with life. I mean, and this is before PTSD in rape victims is... Recognized? A, a common mental... Recognized, that's the word. Yeah. So it's like th- there's not a ton of therapists and psychologists that are trained specifically in this to help them. And yet, how how could any of these victims not have so much PTSD from this? I know. So before she was killed, Debbie hid jewelry that she was wearing in the crack separating the bed from the wall. So as far as the Santa Barbara detectives were concerned, this was just a robbery gone wrong. A few months later, on March 13th, 1980, this person attacked again, this time in Ventura, which was about 40 miles east, a little bit closer to Los Angeles. Charlene and Lyman Smith were found by their 12-year-old son murdered in their home. Oh, shit. The two of them were still bound, Lyman had been tied up by Charlene, and Charlene was tied up by the notorious Diamond Knot, which became the original Night Stalker's signature knot. This, though, was the very first case that investigators really honed in on this knot. And a Diamond Knot, it's also called the Decorator's Knot or the Chinese Knot, and it was very intricately folded, and few people knew how to tie this. A blanket had been draped over their bodies, and the nearby wall was splattered with their blood. The killer had beat both victims to death with a log that he found outside the house. And unlike the last set of victims, Charlene had been raped before her death. Authorities believed that the Ventura and Santa Barbara murders were connected. There were so many similarities, and they were really close together, you know, about 40 miles. They felt there had to be some type of connection. Side note, they were fucking right. 
A few more months down the road, on August 19, 1980, the killer headed further south to Laguna Niguel, where he killed Keith Harrington and then raped and murdered Keith's wife, Patricia. Keith had been killed by a single blow to the head, but Patricia had been beaten with some unknown object multiple times. During her autopsy, there was a piece of brass that was found in the wounds on her head, and detectives assumed that the perpetrator had used a piece of brass piping from outside. The bindings, however, had been cut from the victims after their deaths, so perhaps this was a way for this killer to hide that diamond knot. So maybe he felt like, oh shit, they're honing in on this knot, I'm not going to do it this time. However, there was one thing that was particularly unique about this set of murders, and it was where it happened. Normally, the original Night Stalker would pick homes that were nearby ravines, creek beds, rivers, alleys, open fields, areas that he could quickly escape to. But this was in a gated community, and it wasn't near any of these things. On February 27th, 1981, the next victim was a woman who was home alone, and her name was Manuela Whitham. Her husband was spared, and it was only because he was at the hospital at the time. He wasn't at home. There's not a lot known about how Manuela was found, but she was found in a sleeping bag with multiple bruises and injuries signifying an extremely brutal beating um, and death. Then back in Santa Barbara between July 26th and 27th in 1981, Sherry Domingo and Gregory Sanchez were brutally murdered in Sherry's home. And then everything stopped for almost five years until May 4th, 1986, when the killer came across 18-year-old Janelle Cruz of Irvine, California. At the time, Janelle had been unable to go with her family on vacation to Mexico, and so she was left at home to tend to the house while the rest of her family was gone. The killer entered the home that night and sexually assaulted and murdered her. Janelle's rape and murder was the last suspected murder of this rapist and killer. And in the years following the rapes and murders, Several surviving victims claimed that their attacker had called afterwards and taunted them over the phone. So this was something like the East Area Rapist was doing, so was the original Night Stalker. Granted, the original Night Stalker did kill most of the people he attacked. Sometimes he didn't, or he was still doing this taunting shit. Like, yeah, he was still in contact with them. And you know what? The email was the same, because it was the same fucking person and they didn't know it at the time and i'm like how much quicker could this have been solved could this man have been brought to justice if law enforcement officials and departments fucking communicated with each other in the 70s and 80s i know and also i i struggle to believe that he actually took a five-year break, and I wonder if, did he just change his M.O.? And those rapes and attacks and murders that may have been committed uh, before Janelle was raped and murdered it just haven't been linked to him yet, and maybe won't ever be linked to him. That's always a possibility. But with all of this, 
with all these characteristics, the crime scene evidence, the physical characteristics of victims um, and witnesses who'd seen him, um, the law enforcement and victims, they were able to kind of come up with an actual physical profile. So this man, the East Area Rapist, the original Night Stalker, later to be the Golden State Killer, um, he was a white man. He was about five foot ten inches tall, about one point seven eight meters, slender or athletic build, size nine to nine and a half shoe. He had type A blood, and he was a non secretor, which meant that his sperm didn't contain blood group antigens. Guess that's a DNA. I didn't. Uh, I've never heard of that. I haven't either. Guess um, that's a thing. Guess that's a thing. Um, and he was physically agile. He was capable of sprinting, bicycling, scaling fences. He was, you know, he was like active in shape kind of thing. And after criminologists were able to match serological evidence that they found at uh, some of the murder scenes in Southern California, they were able to kind of start building this psychological profile of the Golden State Killer. And this was based on a probabilistic analysis. So it was a lot of probability-based, a lot of statistics, a lot of social science statistics. And um, and according to Leslie D'Ambrosia, who is the primary author of the profile, the Golden State Killer was probably at an emotional age equivalent to a 26 to 30-year-old at the time the murders began in 1979. He engaged with paraphilic behavior and brutal sex in his personal life. He engaged in sex with sex workers. He had some knowledge of police investigative methods and evidence gathering techniques. He was sexually functional. He was capable of ejaculating with consenting and also non-consenting partners. He dressed well and really wouldn't stand out in an upscale neighborhood. He lived or worked near Ventura, California in 1980. Again, he was in good physical condition. He was a very skilled and experienced cat burglar, and that's probably how he began. So, honestly, even before the Visalia ransackings, he probably did some burglaries before, small scale. He had some kind of means of income, but he didn't work in like the early morning hours because... That's when a lot of his attacks were happening. He hated women for these wrongs that he saw. So he was a fucking sexist pig. He was intelligent and articulate. Um, He was a neat and well-organized person in his personal life. He probably drove a well-maintained car. He peeped in the windows and did a lot of his kind of initial investigative stuff and trying to find victims and a lot of people that were not attacked so he was careful i guess is the word no it's like he selected his victims yeah he was looking around he would get to know people and determine who he was going to attack he was selective that's a better word than fucking careful but yeah he there were a lot more potential victims than there were victims kind of thing and he was someone who was self-assured and confident. He thought he was above it all. He he thought he was a fucking god amongst this, one step ahead of everything. Basically, he was a monster and yet invisible. He was this well-kept, 
white guy who's not going to draw suspicion in these upscale neighborhoods. He's not going to be anyone anyone looks at. And yet he is this disgusting, horrifying, absolute monster. So it had been 10 years since the attack stopped. And in 1996, Orange County Sheriff's Department detectives linked six of the murders to one killer through DNA. Police had several theories that they put together as to why their suspect had not attacked anyone since 1986. They thought maybe he had died or was too incapacitated to commit further crimes. Maybe he moved to a different part of the country and he was committing crimes there. Or maybe he was in prison for an unrelated crime. As a result of their investigation, new laws were created to have DNA profiles taken from all California prisoners. However, it was not until 2001 that the original Night Stalker and the East Area Rapist were connected and determined to be the same person. So that means it literally took them 22 years to connect the East Area Rapist rapes and that murder to the murders and rapes of the original Night Stalker. Which blows my mind because from everything you said, it was kind of obvious. But it wasn't because they weren't communicating, so it was obvious to no one. What person? Like, for example, and this is a bad example, but no, here's a better example. It's like someone going from Amarillo and doing a bunch of shit to Austin. How often are you looking at Amarillo's news? You may be watching Dallas's news, you know, because I'm here and like it's it's another large metro. But you looking at Amarillo's news? Are you looking at their news closely enough to determine if a single person is attacking both both areas? No, you're not, and neither are the police. Yeah, but at the scale that these cases are, I know our listeners would catch it. They'd be listening to different true crime podcasts and be like. Hold on, this unsolved case from Amarillo sounds a lot like this unsolved case from Austin. I know y'all listeners, I know y'all damn armchair connect- detectives, connectives, what? Armchair detectives connect and shit. I mean, but also, again, today, more uh, precincts and districts, like, there is better communication, but it just, it's, his attacks seem so distinct. It it just blows my mind. It took so long because it's not like it, this is a one-off murder that happened that's not talked about as huge. I mean, the East Area Rapist and the original Night Stalker, when still thought to be two different people, were both seen as two of the most horrifying attackers in California. And I just, the MOs are so similar. It blows my mind. It took 22 years from the first time the original Night Stalker attacked for them to be able to connect. Oh, shit. He moved. He didn't die or go to prison in Sacramento. He just moved. Well, and the thing is, it wasn't, I am sure there are plenty of people who had the thought that there was a connection. But it took till 2001 till the till they could officially prove they were the same person. Because you can assume yeah. all damn day, but until you can prove it, that's something different. Because coincidences yeah. are a thing. 
and copycats are a thing. And so while I 100% agree, there was so much more that could have been done and the link should should have been made sooner. There are a few big things that you can understand in the 70s and 80s and early 90s why that connection wasn't made. Yeah. And I guess until really you can just be like, DNA, DNA, connect. It's it's going to be hard to prove. And 2001, I mean, D- DNA was a thing that was like really discovered and developed and used in the 90s. Exactly. So, you know, starting to look at DNA profiles for way past cases... 2000 i mean it, it it makes sense it just pisses me off <laughs> i know all of this case pisses me off same so in 2001 several rapes in contra costa county believed to have been committed by the east area rapist were linked in dna to the smith harrington wuthan and cruz murders that were done by the original night stalker and therefore, the name Eron's was created. And you mentioned this at the top of the episode. That is the East Area Rapist, original Night Stalker, crammed together, Eron's. And one thing I did want to note, um, because original Night Stalker, Night Stalker, who is Richard Ramirez, like, what? He is, the Golden State Killer is called the original Night Stalker because he was before Richard Ramirez. Yeah. And was, like, called the Night Stalker, I think, locally. And then Richard Ramirez gained, like, fame. Notoriety. That's notoriety as the Night Stalker. So this that's why it's original Night Stalker. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. A decade later, DNA evidence indicated that the Domingo Sanchez murders were committed by the Golden State Killer. And these were the attacks and murders that happened in July of 81. All of this was confirmed to be the Golden State Killer. So to heighten the awareness of the case, and also because she just became enamored with it, Michelle McNamara, she is the one that coined the name the Golden State Killer in early 2013. And she was one of those people, like you were saying earlier, about our listeners who would be able to be like, no, 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 Amarillo, Austin, y'all got some similarities. That's exactly what Michelle did. She had her day job, and then it was like her night job was crime investigation. She would sleuth the internet like no one's business, and she would find connections, and she would find information, and she became so good at it that she was such a reliable source. And she came up with the Golden State Killer moniker. So she was heavily involved in getting this case moving forward. And you can read all about this in her book that I admitted I haven't read, and as well as watching the HBO docuseries, it goes into so much detail about what she did, and I 110% guarantee and know it to be fact, she's part of the reason why the rest of the stuff I'm about to cover even happened. Oh, I am 100% sure. Without Michelle McNamara... The Golden State Killer would be walking free right now. This case would not be solved. No. So on June 15th, 2016, FBI released further information related to the crimes, including some new composite sketches and crime details, and a $50,000 reward was also announced. 
Their initiative included a national database to support law enforcement investigating the crimes and handle tips and information. Because again, they didn't know if the crime stopped in 1986 in California because this person left. And so if there are other agencies who have similar cases, maybe it means he moved. And so they put together this database. Yeah, I mean, who the fuck knows if, oh shit, in the early 90s, in Charleston, South Carolina, there's a similar profile. Like, who knows? Unless you have a database and a way to communicate this all together. Exactly. Our listeners could do it just saying, y'all badasses. 100%. I see y'all. Yeah. I see I see the, the comments and emails we get that are like, um, have you thought about this? In this case, you did. And I'm like, fuck, who are you? <laughs> Damn. And I, I think it is such a perfect example of the, in like, criminal investigations and stuff, that need for a different perspective, a new set of eyes. I mean, from my HR brain... When it's, I'm thinking of like work scenarios, when it's important to bring in a new person unfamiliar, you can have a different set of ideas. But like, think of that, but interesting. No, it's, (laughs) that's all the time, by the way. All right. No, yes. So I'm about to get to the part that blew this fucking case wide open. And it's what a lot of us think of now when we think of the Golden State Killer. And that's how DNA came into play. This is the damn Zalatoth to Nazoth, y'all. Identification of GSK started in January 2018, when officials led by Detective Paul Hulls and FBI lawyer Steve Kramer, they uploaded the killer's DNA profile from a Ventura County rape kit to the personal genomics website GED Match. The website ended up identifying 10 to 20 people who had the same great-great-great-grandparents as the Golden State Killer, and a team of five investigators working with genealogist Barbara Ray Venter used this list to construct a large family tree. Side note, and for those of y'all who know this, you were like, ah, light bulb, but um, for those who don't, Barbara Raventer was also involved in the Bearbrook identifications for the murder that happened in Bearbrook State Park in Allenstown, New Hampshire. So this is this is not her first rodeo. Like this is what oh she does. Uh, and we've also talked about it in I don't know what episode it was. I'm gonna guess fifty one episodes ago. Scroll back to that. Maybe we talked about it then. I don't know. But about the like DNA um testing stuff you know the like ancestry.com or whatever spit in the tube and like oh what am i like where do i come from like we've talked about you know that being a part of like you know criminal investigations being able to use that dna information and build a family tree because for all the fuck you know your great great 17th removed uncle is a murderer and you're the missing piece and This is one of those cases that, like, really, I think, cemented that idea of, like, oh, shit, familial fucking DNA, y'all. And that's exactly how the FBI said it. It's the familial fucking DNA, y'all, team. Yeah. Yeah. FF DNA. The FF 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. T. <laughs> M. <laughs> the me. <laughs> you know. So from this tree that they created, they established two suspects. One was ruled out by relatives' DNA tests. This left one man named Joseph D'Angelo as the main suspect. So who the f- dun, dun. who the fuck is Joseph D'Angelo? D'Angelo was born in 1945, and from May 1973 to August 1976, he was a burglary unit police officer in Exeter, which was a town of about 5,000 people people near uh, Visalia. He then served in Auburn from August 1976 to 1979, when he was arrested for shoplifting a hammer and a and dog repellent. He was sentenced to six months probation and then fired that October. And if you'll remember, the East Area Rapists Crimes in Sacramento stopped in the summer of 1979. And then the original Night Stalker picked right back up in October 1979. Sounds like there's a pretty clear evidence of uh, what happened in that and uh, why he may have had to leave Auburn in the Sacramento area and... uh, Live south to the Los Angeles area. So his employment history in the 1980s is unknown, but from 1990 until his retirement in 2017, he worked as a truck mechanic at a Safe Mart supermarkets distribution center in Roseville. And he was also arrested in 1996 over an incident at a gas station, but the charges were eventually dismissed. His brother-in-law said that D'Angelo casually brought up the East Area Rapist in conversation around the time of the original crimes. You know, when you first say that, I'm like, holy shit, that's a thing. But then I think about- Everyone was talking about it. Well, and also, how many conversations have we had that were like, so, did you hear the news about the Golden State Killer? Because we're true crime fans. And bringing up crazy shit like that's kind of what we do. So, my first reaction is like, oh my god, bitch, he's bringing it up. And it's like, that's fucking weird to do. Why is there not a connection? But also, I'm like, "Mm, but how many times have I been talking to people and been like, oh my god, you're my coworker's spouse. And I have no idea what to talk to you about. Let me bring up murder and true crime. It's true. Have you heard of the Golden State Killer? And then that works. Because 2020 is just fucking weird. It's true. Neighbors also reported that D'Angelo frequently engaged in very loud and profane outbursts. He was that fucking neighbor. One neighbor even reported that his family received a phone message from D'Angelo threatening to deliver a load of death. Because of their barking dog. Now... Jesus fucking Christ. I know barking dogs can be annoying, but please don't unload death on your neighbors. Listen, you and I both live in apartment complexes. Many of our listeners live in apartment complexes. We get it. Your upstairs neighbor's barking dog makes your eyes want to roll into the back of your head until you start bleeding and rising from your bed from the spirit of your anger. But none of us are going to, one, act on it or even, like, say anything when you run into them in the mailroom. Even when they're like, I'm sorry, my dog's 
was so loud last night. We're like socially awkward putting our key in our mailbox saying, oh my god, no, it's fine. I didn't hear anything. Like, <laughs> no, you're good. Um, this is not a personal story. I don't know what you all are saying. Um, but deliver a load of death? One, what? Like, that's what does that mean? sentence structure wise. Like, my AP high school English brain says, mm, I don't know about that. But uh, also, Jesus fucking Christ, your dog's barking. I'm gonna murder all of you. Like, y'all, we've all been woken up at 5 a.m. It's a Monday. You didn't go to sleep when you wanted to on Sunday, but you did. You're like, you know what? I'll settle for five hours of sleep. It's fine. Whatever. I have work. It's fine. And then, I don't know, the apartment fire alarm goes off. Or your upstairs neighbor's dogs with their long-ass fucking toenails decide now is the time to start sprinting around, barking, running around on the wood floors. We've all woken up like that, and it's made us angry. That's a universal experience that I have decided you all have had. If you haven't, pretend you have. Pretend with me. But to call someone and threaten to deliver a load of death is a level of, like, fucked upness. Oh my god. Yeah, what he said was a lot. So, the moment we've all been waiting for. On April 18th, 2018... A DNA sample was collected from the door handle of D'Angelo's car, and then later, another sample was collected from a tissue that was found in his curbside garbage can. Both were matched to samples associated with Golden State Killer crimes. So on April 24th, 2018, Sacramento County Sheriff's deputies arrested D'Angelo. He was 72 years old. He was charged with eight counts of first-degree murder with special circumstances, and on May 10th, the Santa Barbara County District Attorney's Office charged D'Angelo with four additional counts of first-degree murder. Now, after his arrest, there were some commentators that raised concerns about the ethics involved in the secondary use of personality identification information. So all of these spit-in-a-tube, DNA give me, I'll give you your family tree, can the police use that information? But it was because eventually through the use of this genetic genealogy research on GED match, investigators identified distant relatives of D'Angelo, including family members directly related to his great-great-great-great-grandfather back in the 1800s. That is four greats. (laughs) That was four greats back in the 1800s. Based on the information they found, investigators built about 25 different family trees. And the tree that eventually linked to D'Angelo contained about a thousand people. So, there's a lot of information there. And over the course of a few months, investigators used other clues like age, sex, and place of residence to rule out suspects populating these different family trees, and they eliminated suspects one by one until only D'Angelo remained. So the DNA was not the only thing they used. It was just the catalyst for this information. So what is really this gut-wrenching thing is that back at the very beginning of the investigation, 
they had the thought that this could be a fucking cop. And it was. Mm -hmm. Like, why? Like, you said in your part, and I said in mine, like, the things that he was doing, they're cop things. He was... They're investigative. Yes. So D'Angelo offered up a confession of sorts after he was arrested. And this is when he referred to an inner personality named Jerry that had apparently forced him to commit the wave of crimes that ended abruptly in 1986. Yeah, that's uh, not how DID works. And um, that's fucking... No. Also, again, it's like, I'm like, uh, are you just a cop trying to use shit you've heard? Uh, yeah. So when he was in a police interrogation room by himself after his arrest in 19, or excuse me, in April uh, 2018, no 19 there, he was overheard saying, again, to himself, I didn't have the strength to push him out. He made me. He went with me. It was like in my head. I mean, he's a part of me. I didn't want to do these things. I pushed Jerry out and had a happy life. I did all those things. I destroyed all their lives. So now I've got to pay the price. Unfortunately, D'Angelo cannot be charged with the rapes or burglaries because of statute of limitations that has expired for those offenses. But he's been charged for 13 counts of murder and 13 counts of kidnapping. There are certain crimes that should not have a statute of limitations. Murder, rape, no. Those should not have a statute of limitations. Well, but his murders did not have that statute of limitations. Well, I mean, I know. his, But I think in most states, the statute of limitations for murder is like 70-something years. Right. Um, But his rapes, I'm like, no. There are certain crimes that, like, yeah, I get it. You know, like, low-level crimes. If you, I don't know, shoplifted when you were 16, and you're somehow fucking caught, which, dear God, that means they're not investigating what they should be investigating, <laughs> when you're 40, yeah. You know, statute of limitations should apply. Because, okay, come on. let Like, for real... It, when it comes to, like, stealing things from stores, I'm a bad bitch. You're not the same person when you're 17 and when you're 40. When it comes to rape or murder or assault, things like that, things that are not victimless crimes, things that are actively you taking action to harm and hurt and destroy another person. Yeah. I'm like, that doesn't have a statute of limitations on your victim. They will carry this with them for the rest of their lives. Whether they were raped or attacked or someone attempted to murder them. Like, that's not something that goes away for the victim. Why is it something that should go away for the attacker? I 100% agree. That is very well said because it's true. Like, this should not, there shouldn't be statute of limitations on crimes like this. D'Angelo was arraigned in Sacramento on August 23rd, 2018, and at an April 10th, 2019 court proceeding, prosecutors announced that they would seek the death penalty, and the judge ruled that cameras could be allowed inside the courtroom during the trial. 
Leading up to the trial on March 4, 2020, D'Angelo offered to plead guilty if the death penalty was taken off the table. At the time, this was not accepted. So then, the trial began, and on June 20, 2020, D'Angelo pleaded guilty to 13 murder charges and kidnapping charges related to as many rapes in a deal to avoid the death penalty. And the victim impact statements and sentencing are scheduled to begin the week of August 17th, 2020. But it is expected that he will receive life without the possibility of parole. And so this decades-old saga is coming to a close. And this is one of the things that is extremely rare. This is not common. There are not often cold cases from decades past that are able to be solved. So this is pretty amazing. Now, while there are a lot of things that happened in the investigation that we wish would have led to a sooner capture, especially, I can't get out of my head, the fact that they knew it was a cop early on drives me crazy. And we think about so many cases like, I know we brought this up in the last episode, but it's a great example, but like Black Dahlia, Zodiac Killer, those are ones that are at this point in time, they're they're not going to be solved. People are dead. Mm-hmm. We were able to catch Joseph D'Angelo before he was dead. And if you've seen the dude on TV, he yeah. looks like he's pretty fucking close. So it makes me sick to know that he got to live his life out free not being caught so many years so many years i mean since his last crime that we know of since janelle's murder 35 years which he's in his 70s he was what 40 early 40s yeah when he raped and murdered janelle are you fucking kidding me and he got the rest of his life he's a monster he's one of the worst people that we've ever like had on this podcast not had as in he's not a guest that we had them on this podcast they're a guest star Mm -mm. no but like i don't know done i'm so thankful he was caught it makes me so angry how long it took i wonder because i know it's a part of it how much of the reason it took so long is because so many of his victims were part of the Latinx community. And his, so many of his victims were women. So many of his victims were of marginalized communities. Well, and also, how much was put into the fact that he was a cop? And so did did his coworkers ever think maybe, but they didn't speak up, or he did some fucked up shit, but, but like, he's a cop. But so you gotta protect you know. your own. So how much did yeah. that play a part? Yeah. Well, like we said at the beginning, there is so much more to this case, and, my god, you guys, if you're interested, there's a wealth of information out there, and go check it out read more figure out more about this case there are a lot of areas to have further discussions about there's a lot of holes there's a lot of opportunities and controversies and this case is just so much oh yeah i mean if we were the kind of podcast that did like seasons and really dove into a case each season 
the Golden State Killer would be an entire season. There's so much that he did. There's so much damage he did that, I mean, it's impossible to cover it in one episode, even as long as this one is. And y'all, watch the documentaries, read Michelle McNamara's book, I'll Be Gone in the Dark. And yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't really know what to say because there's nothing more to say because th- this case, there's a reason why we waited so long to do it, and it's because it was still happening, and there's still so yeah. much more, and we'll definitely do an update after August when sentencing happens and victims impact statements happen because we want to make sure you guys are aware of, of all that's going on but yeah if you enjoyed this episode let us know please make sure to rate and review us on apple Podcasts. give us that five star review we love hearing what you say love seeing those new reviews so thank you so much to those who are leaving them yes and also make sure to like and follow us on social media we are on facebook twitter and instagram There you get to see all our posts about our episodes, you get some personal posts about us doing our lives, and get to see the wines we're doing, all the things. All the things. So if you're interested in that, do it. And with that, this is Blood and Wine, signing off. XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye.